The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Again, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. If you're just joining us, really glad that you're here this morning. We're continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 15, this wonderful passage on the resurrection. So if you have your Bibles or your apps, whatever it is you use to follow along, you can take those out. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have these new black hardback Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can take one of those out to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, we actually have some for you out at our Welcome Center. After the service, we have a small gift for you that includes a Bible. just encourage you to go pick that up so you can have a Bible of your own to take home and read. Like I said, we're in this passage talking about the resurrection, and up until this point, the Apostle Paul has largely given us a very dense, a very rational, a very logical argument for the resurrection of Christ. But in our text this morning, there's a bit of a shift, not only in Paul's tactic, but even in the tone of what he's trying to say to us because he's shifting from primarily an appeal to the head to an arrest of the heart. I wonder how many of you have heard an expression like this, that feelings are like the caboose. Anyone heard that before? Your feelings are the caboose. You shouldn't trust them. I don't like that. Here's why. I think it diminishes the value of emotions and feelings in the Christian life. And if you try and go through life suppressing your emotion, the Bible isn't going to make much sense to you. I think a better, maybe a better uh, mechanical metaphor would be that our feelings are like the warning light on your dash. They're not what's wrong, but they can tell you if something's gone wrong under the hood. You know? I want you to remember that as we come to our text this morning, because I think the effect that our text should have on us as we're reading through this this morning is to consider this terrible thought. What if the resurrection of Christ were not true? Would that make any difference in our lives? And I think when we really let ourselves sit with that question, really let it just sort of weigh on us for a moment, it ought to create in us a kind of ache, a deep pit in our stomach maybe of unresolved hopes and fears and desires and beliefs. You see, it's not only the knowledge of our minds, but also these felt aches of our heart that lead us to true faith and obedience in the resurrected Christ. And so I would just ask you this morning to receive God's word with an open and a contemplative heart as we consider the immense weight of what we have before us. We're in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 29. This is God's word. Otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? 
I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. So what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, (laughs) let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray together. Father, we want to be people who delight in the resurrection of Christ our Savior. And so this morning I pray that your word would open up our hearts, reveal to us our inconsistencies, our distractions, the ways that we are numbing your will and your word in our lives, that you would reveal to us our sin, and that you will then lead us to the resurrected Christ, who alone has the power to transform our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this text this morning, it's actually fairly straightforward, very short. So we're just going to kind of work our way from top to bottom. I want to walk through some of these rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul has left for us. And then we're going to end looking at the final exhortation in verse 34. Now, verse 29, it's a little bit confusing, isn't it? Anyone sort of like, what is Paul talking about? The baptism of the dead. I had a couple Mormons show up at my house a few weeks ago, and in the midst of our conversation, I don't even remember how we got to this, you know, it's like you're trying to stick to the gospel, and you end up in the weeds, don't know how you get there, but they start telling me about these practices they have about rituals, right, on behalf of the dead for their Mormon ancestors, and so I asked them about it, like, well, where do you get that from, and they took me to this verse, verse 29, 1 Corinthians 15, I was like, oh, I'm preaching that in a few weeks, and I'm not sure what to say. Um, I was... I was caught off guard because I hadn't really paused to consider what exactly Paul is talking about in this passage. But let me just give you uh, a little bit of safety advice. If anybody comes to your door, if you're talking to anybody, and they say that they're a Christian or they're like the one true church, and they want to emphasize this, this practice that's unfamiliar to you, and you say, okay, tell me about that, and they only have one verse to back it up, you're probably in dangerous territory. So tread carefully. All right, There's only one verse. Tread carefully with that. So what's going on in Corinth? Well, we have every reason to think that the Corinthian church was practicing some form of vicarious baptism, which essentially was this practice of uh, when people would die without being baptized, maybe their sons or their daughters or their relatives would get baptized on their behalf. Well, they couldn't do it before they died, so we'll do it for them. Now, there's a reason why we don't still do this today. Okay, remember that the Corinthian church is not exactly the standard of godly, sound Christian practice. I think we've learned that, right, in our study of this, of this letter. Vicarious baptisms are a kind of pagan-infused ritual that sort of combines the idea of baptism with these pagan rituals for the dead into sort of one weird, strange combination. And we don't really see it in church history. When we do, it's in heretical groups. John Chrysostom condemns the Marcionites for practicing this. That's just one example. So why does Paul mention it here? Well, just because he appeals to the practice doesn't mean he approves of it. 
In fact, the language itself appears that he's trying to distance himself from the practice without getting lost in the weeds of condemning it and getting distracted from his main argument. You see this in literally the verse 29 reads, what do those people mean by baptism on behalf of the dead? Why are those people being baptized on their behalf? And you contrast that with verse 30 where he changes to this we, the inclusive we language. So he's distancing himself from the practice without explicitly having to condemn it. Because the point of referencing this practice is to show how contradictory it was for the, the Corinthians to want something more for the dead and yet not believe in the resurrection at the same time. You're baptizing yourselves on the behalf of the dead, which says you want something more for the dead, and yet you don't believe in the resurrection. Well, the resurrection is what's more for the dead. So there's an inconsistency in your belief and in your practice. Your practice says one thing, your beliefs say another. The best modern example I can think to give you, this is an imperfect metaphor, imperfect example, but the best modern example I can think to give you is to think about tattoos, okay? Now, I have three tattoos, so you know where I stand on this issue. Um, I got my first tattoo before I was a Christian at a time where I was going through a lot of personal pain and confusion. I was 21, senior in college, not a Christian, and my grandfather had just died, who was a real, really like a second father uh, to me. And so really, getting a tattoo was sort of the way of my, my expressing myself, you know, this pain that I had. And so I have a tattoo on my arm here, in the center is a cross, and remember, I wasn't a Christian at the time. And then I have the names and the dates of my brother who had also passed away, and my grandfather, and the dates that they had passed away, right? In the center of it, in Chinese characters, it says, peace, love, and family, I think. <laughs> I don't read or speak Chinese, so it might just say macaroni and cheese uh, in, the, in the greatest punked prank of uh, any tattoo artist. I'm not sure. I regret nothing, though. I regret nothing. We have a local pastor friend named Al Dayhoff. He has a ministry to tattoo in tattoo parlors. And for the last several years, he's interviewed people in tattoo shops about their tattoos and its significance. And he's written a book now and he goes around talking about his findings. He has a book called God and Tattoos that talk about some of his conclusions that he's found. And I really think he's onto something. Essentially what Al concludes is that the image of God in our culture has become so suppressed that for many people, the only place left to express itself is on the skin of their bodies. Sort of like a last ditch effort to express the image of God, and we do it on our bodies. Al says that tattoos have become the modern graveyard, because again, we've so suppressed even the sight or the, the sound or the topic of death that people have no other way to deal with it than to tattoo it on their skin. Now, you may not approve of tattoos, that's fine. You may not even understand why people get them, that's also fine. But you don't need to agree with the practice in order to use it as a way to appeal to the truths of Christianity. Does that make sense? Now, God saved me in his sovereign timing, but I think about what a conversation with my 21-year-old self might have been like. Hey, I see you have a tattoo. What does it mean? Huh, I see you have a cross in there. What's the significance of that? So are you a Christian? Huh. 
Sounds to me like maybe you want to be. Paul pointed out the inconsistencies of, in others to show them that there was a, something not adding up between their faith and in their practice. But you see, we all have inconsistencies. And so before we start to think about pointing out the speck in others' eyes, let's take a moment and take the log out of our own. You see, to varying degrees, we all have contradictory beliefs and practices and values. Psychologists would call this cognitive dissonance. We say we want more sleep, but we stay up binging Netflix until past midnight. We say we value family, and yet we can't seem to stop working late. We say we don't believe in God, but we get tattoos saying, rest in peace, on our arms. We say we don't believe in the resurrection, but we want something more for our dead, and so we run races and do fundraisers in their honor. The competing values that we hold, this cognitive dissonance that we all have, it ought to create in us a kind of ache. Some would call this a longing. Others might call it a felt need. But it's this feeling of inconsistency. It's this feeling of something's missing from my life that's keeping my thoughts and my beliefs and my desires and my actions from being aligned. In his book, Disrupted Witness, Alan Noble says, one of our greatest problems as Christians today is that we live in an age of great distraction. And so he says, because we're so distracted by technology and social media and entertainment news and all these other things, we coast through life completely unaware of the contradictory beliefs and practices that we have because we don't take the time to evaluate ourselves. With another distraction always waiting for us, a new Netflix show always waiting for us, we have very little time for introspection, or at least we take very little time for introspection. And so you see, it's easy for us to ignore our aches when we're distracted by all this stuff that's in front of us. What if the resurrection were not true? Would there be more or less consistency in your life between your values and your practice? Would my life without Christ be more consistent than a life that confesses Christ while, but functionally lives without him? It's a hard question. Paul's question in verse 29 from this broad cultural practice, he moves now to be uh, more specific to a question regarding his own life in verse 30. It's no secret if you read the New Testament that Paul did not live a comfortable life. Like most Christians, Paul was not well liked by civil and Jewish authorities. Paul refers to his experience now at Ephesus as one example. He talks about these beasts that he fought with in Ephesus. Now, it's possible that he's talking about real beasts. We don't know. There's no recording of this. It's possible, though. It's real beasts. I think it's more likely he's just talking about uh, those who persecuted him or resisted him in Ephesus. You read about his adversaries in chapter 16, verse 9. He says there's many adversaries in Ephesus. And you see an example of this in Acts 19, where Paul and his followers 
have some resistance in Ephesus. So I think that's likely what he's referring to. But either way, the thrust of his question is this. Why have we suffered for the gospel if there is no resurrection? What a waste, right? What a pathetic waste of life if there were no resurrection. Why willingly take on suffering if it means nothing? Why sacrifice your life if it means nothing? Remember what he said in verse 19. If this resurrection were not true, we are most of all to be pitied. Yuval Harari, I've referenced him before. He's a best-selling atheist, author, and historian. You can still go to Barnes & Noble, head to the bestseller rack. His book, Sapiens, is a few years old, still there in their top ten best-selling books. He's very blunt in his belief that the world is meaningless. He says in his second book, Homo Deus, that the great challenge of our modern age is to create meaning in a meaningless world. There's no great goal for your life, no purpose, no destination. You're going nowhere except six feet under, destined to be forgotten within a generation, scorched by the sun once our planet's life cycle runs its course. And that's it. You might try to find meaning and value and purpose and sacrifice and family in some great adventure for your life, but it's all a delusion. So he says, if there were no resurrection, why not just live like there's no tomorrow? Why not? Why not? If, if nothing is waiting for you on the other side, if there is no final judgment, no promise of everlasting life, do what you want to do. Who am I or anybody else to stop you? Party it up. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. This quote is from Isaiah chapter 22 when the people in Jerusalem were being sieged by Assyria. And rather than repenting and mourning as they should have, says they were living it up. Hey, Assyria's coming. We're dead tomorrow. Let's party. It's a fitting rebuke given that the people in Corinth were gorging themselves on idle meat. People were leaving the Lord's Supper hungry. They were getting drunk on wine. It's fitting. Fitting for them. Maybe it's fitting for some of us. What if the resurrection were not true? How does that sit with you? How much of your life would really change? If you consider yourself a follower of Christ, the very thought of this ought to create a sinking feeling in our gut. It should stir in us a, an ache for the resurrection. Have you ever had a bad dream that you just can't shake the next day? No matter what you do, it just haunts you. 
I have. That's a resurrection ache. You ever watched a movie like La La Land or Forrest Gump or even Lord of the Rings and it gets to the end and you realize there is no happy, neat ending and you say, mm, mm-mm, I don't like that. That's a resurrection ache. A resurrection ache is realizing that as much as you were looking, looking forward to your new gadget, your new car, your new house, new school clothes, a week later you just don't seem to care about it anymore. A resurrection ache is a feeling of depression and anxiety that just follows you around like a ghost. And it's just this constant feeling of this world is not the way it's supposed to be. A resurrection ache is waking up one morning and realizing life has not gone the way that I, that I wanted it to. You see, the Corinthians had been deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Your Bible may have a footnote that mentions this is a direct quote from a pagan comedy. I hope you see the irony. The Corinthian Christians ought by now to have been able to show and tell of Christ to their pagan neighbors. Instead, as we've seen throughout this letter, they've become numb by the beliefs and practices of their culture. They're no longer aware of just how inconsistent they are. And at the root of it all, where Paul has been driving us to this whole time, is to see at the resurrection, or a lack of belief in the resurrection, at the center of it all. Now don't move too quickly past this. There is a great danger today that is as present in our age as it was in Paul's day of being deceived in small ways, very slowly, subtly, until the truth of the Christian faith is turned into a lie. The warning here is so serious that Paul would say some of us have no knowledge of God, which means we completely lack discernment of true and spiritual things. I wonder how many of us take the time to regularly consider how we're being shaped by the messages of the culture. And I mean that in both a positive and negative sense. How, how is the culture affecting me on a day-to-day basis? N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, brilliant guy, commenting on this This passage, he says this. He says, The wise Christian will take time to regularly ask themselves questions like this. Does the way I use my time and resources reflect what I believe as a Christian? Do my behaviors and actions make sense of the sufferings that so many have undergone for their faith? Are my beliefs starting to show signs of being more influenced by non-Christian ideas than biblical ones? Does my life reflect a true understanding and discernment of the one true God? Those are deep questions to sit with 
How often are we taking the time to do that? If I could go back in time to when my great-grandfather was about my age, to tell him of this great new idea that I have, all right? Say, Pops, I have this idea. I want you to invest in it. Here, here it is. I want you to invest in this. Um, what I want to do is I want to build just rows and rows of garage-sized storage units. You see, because in 50 years, the average American home is going to triple in size, and yet one in 10 Americans will still not have enough room for all their stuff. And so we can just make bank on just selling storage to people. He would have looked at me and said, you are crazy. Who would need that? And yet here we are. We just have so much stuff. And that's become normal for us. There's nothing strange to us about the fact that the United States has 3% of the global population of children, and yet we consume 40% of the world's toys. That's just normal for us. There's nothing strange to us about the fact that today's Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition is yesterday's pornography. Nothing strange to us about that. Nothing strange to us about the fact that a five-year-old can see more violent and sexual images by the time they're five than my great-grandfather saw in a whole lifetime. Nothing strange to us about that. Now, I'm not against houses. I live in one. I'm not against storage units, and I'm not against toys. My point is this. If we can be, if we can just go along with the cultural current in ways that just don't phase us, isn't it likely that our faith is being influenced by the culture in ways that we're probably not even aware of? Scripture tells us not to be bitter, but how many of us can become just as, as bitter and sarcastic about the world as the journalists we read or the talk show radio hosts that we listen to? Jesus says our eyes are the lamp of our body, and Paul says we ought to flee sexual immorality, but our lingering eyes, the graphic nudity on that new Netflix show that everybody else is watching, just doesn't seem to phase us. Well, that doesn't affect me. We confess that we're a part of the family of God and that we ought to have all things in common, and yet how often do I think of my home, my possessions, my time as mine and not something to be freely given to others? What if the resurrection were not true? None of what I had said just now for the last 20 minutes would really matter. We may as well live a life of fleeting passion. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But is that what you really want? Even if you don't believe in the resurrection, wouldn't you want it to be true? That's a resurrection ache. Because you were made for more than an inconsistent, distracted, 
stuff-filled and aching life. And every thought we've been entertaining for the last 20 minutes is just a bad dream. So wake up. Wake up. Sober up. Throw off the sin that ensnares you. Because the resurrection is true. And Christ stands before you as the one who has not only conquered sin and death, but who has also raised again to new life and invites you into something more. He is the only one where our aches and our, satis- and our satisfaction can be found. This is why the scriptures say, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Far from a life of distracted inconsistency, a life of deep conviction and purpose is made available to us in a king who is delighted and pleased in us. Far from a life of little direction, we can know where we are going. We are destined to be raised with Christ. And that doesn't take away our suffering, but it puts it in perspective. These light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Rather than living a life chasing satisfaction and stuff that does not satisfy We can be free to let go of our stuff, of our resources, of our energy, of our time to freely bless others. Rather than living life intoxicated on pleasures, we can enjoy the good things that God has made as evidence of his love and care for us. Friends, all of this is found in the resurrected Christ who is proclaimed to you has raised. The resurrection is true. So as we come to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper this morning, I invite all of you who follow Christ to pause. Pause and look in. Examine yourselves to reflect in the ways that you may be numbing your resurrection aches maybe with distraction, with stuff, with busyness. Confess these things freely to the Lord. Maybe resolve to go to a friend after service and confess to a friend who you know will encourage you in grace. All riches and every good is found in Christ, and so let's be resolved to drink of his fountain and from none other.
And if you're here this morning and you do not believe in the resurrected Christ, I will simply ask you to consider, don't you at least want it to be true? That there's something more for you? If you're feeling a fresh ache that you haven't felt this morning, that's your warning light indicator. Don't ignore that. Explore that more. Ask God to meet you in that place and see if he doesn't answer. Allow your resurrection aches to take you to the resurrected Christ who is the only one who can satisfy you. Let's pray together. Father, we are together horrified at the thought of what if the resurrection were not true? Where would our hope be found? Lord, shake us from this bad dream. Shake us from our distractions, our inconsistencies, the things that we are using to numb our aches, our longings, our sorrows. Fill us afresh this morning, Lord. Center our lives on the resurrection where we can be properly ordered for the new life that is coming. Free us from our sin. Help us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to you in righteousness. As we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper, Lord, we ask that you would feed us, make us new. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.